You're listening to the Cars of Carlisle Network, podcast episode number 72, featuring Sam and Lou in the Intracast on the Buick Regal Grand National. Cars of Carlisle is your favorite internationally downloaded podcast about all things automotive. Darren and his CFC team are ever searching for interesting automotive happenings, real stories about real car people, and fun features to inform and entertain you. Each week, the Cars of Carlisle crew brings you show topics ranging from car shows to team adventures to auto racing weekends to behind-the-scenes human interest stories from car nuts that live across town, across the country, or even across the globe. Come join the road trip. Today, enjoy a second episode in a new series of intra-podcasts under the Cars of Carlisle Network. This is the Sam and Lou Show, hosted by Cars of Carlisle crew members, Louis Genicopoulos and Sam Farringer. In this episode, Sam and Lou unpack the history of Buick's success in disrupting the 1980s car scene, an era when fuel economy and reduced horsepower nearly eliminated modern muscle car fun. Then came the formidable Grand National. By 1987, Buick was pumping out unheard of horsepower from the super high output turbo V6 in the GNX edition. At this point, Buick was giving Chevrolet reason to worry as Grand Nationals were smacking down Corvettes in the quarter mile. It's time to spool up the turbos, so let's get revved up. Hello and welcome back to your favorite informative automotive podcast. I am your trusted host, Darren. This week, Sam and Lou are back in the studio to share their extensive research behind the Buick Grand National, a vehicle that Lou himself owns. And if you spent any time growing up or or living life in the mid to late 80s, you know all about the Grand National. It was a welcome sight for a time when cars were really becoming anemic and weak and underpowered. The Grand National completely pounced the scene and changed uh, really the automotive scene uh, pretty much single-handedly from a muscle car standpoint. And it was a breath of fresh air that was needed at that time. So there's so much for you to learn today. Can't wait for you to check out this second episode with the intercast of Sam and Lou, important staff and team members of the Cars of Carlisle family. But first, let's do this week's trivia question, which is actually germane to the Grand National topic. So here we go. With the 1987 Buick Regal GNX putting out roughly 360 pound-feet of torque, shredding tires off the line was truly no issue for the GNX. That said, what special rear-end housing feature did Buick engineers incorporate and develop in order to plant the GNX on launch? And that would help keep the tires from spinning out and... uh, Uh, shredding them to bits. So what was that special rear-end housing? We'll have that answer at the end of this episode. Also, this would be a good time to mention to you about all the great events that are happening at the AACA Museum in Hershey, Pennsylvania. Coming up this Friday, September 20th, and Saturday, September 21st, the museum will be hosting the Roadmap Collectors Trade Show. And this is whereby all the roadmaps that gas stations and other uh, facilities would hand out This is going to be a group of people that collect those and uh, very interesting, even if you haven't been part of it, check that out. Also this coming weekend on Saturday, the AACA Museum will be hosting the Corvair Club Show. And on top of that, still on Saturday, you can sign up for the Smithsonian Museum Day Live, whereby you can download tickets to other participating Smithsonian affiliate galleries. 
But wait, there's more. <laughs> you can experience the kind of cars that most of us started our passion with, and that was Matchbox cars. I know I had them by the hundreds. I had suitcase after suitcase full of Matchbox cars. They were my, you could say, the first cars in my proverbial garage. On Sunday, this, uh, this Sunday the 22nd, stop over to Hershey to visit our friends at the AACA Museum as they're going to welcome the Matchbox Toy Show. And it is still not too late for the night to sign up for that Night at the Museum event to be held Wednesday, October 9th. In fact, I think the, expert, the uh, deadline for sign-up is the 1st of October, so be sure to do that. But in that particular evening, the museum will come alive with character actors as they bring the automotive past to life, and the museum itself will be honoring the Carlisle event's founders. Bill Miller Jr. and the late Chip Miller that evening as part of their annual Automotive Heritage Awards ceremony. It really should be noted too that one of the auction items that will be available to bid on is a ride in the last surviving automatic transmission equipped Tucker. Yeah, that's right. That, the winner of that auction item is going to be extremely lucky. That winner and a guest of their choosing will be taken on a once in a lifetime ride in Tucker number 1026. And lastly, save the date for the 10th anniversary of the Autos and Ales. That's to be held on Friday, November 1st. And when you buy three tickets, you get a fourth at no charge as a designated driver ticket. So check out more information at autosandales.com. So without further ado, let's head to Sam and Lou. Thanks for that intro, Darren. We're back with the Cars of Carlisle Intracast. I'm Sam, and I'm here with Lou, the Cars of Carlisle resident expert on Buick and uh, all-around fanboy. And today we're going to talk about the legacy of a cult classic from the late 80s, the Grand National. Before we get to that, we need to rewind the clock a little bit and start back in the 70s. What we know now is the Grand National and the GNX didn't exist, didn't just come out of anywhere. Um, and in fact, when Buick first started pursuing turbo V6 power, it was in mind of doing it for a fuel-efficient manner not necessarily performance. Also kind of ironic, the first turbo V6 ever produced by Buick was in the 1976 pace car for the Indianapolis 500. Um, actually, back in 73, Buick decided to repurchase a V6 design that they previously sold to AMC in the mid-60s for their Jeep line. Um, so they buy back the rights, not really doing anything with it, and then in 1975, they win the bid for the Indianapolis 500 pace car, um, which they so deemingly named Free Spirit. It was a new ad campaign, uh, which coincided with the coming bicentennial of 1976. What we thought would be a V6-powered car actually ended up being the popular 455. Although it wasn't stock, it was slightly warmed over, um, had basic upgrades to keep pace with the race, and had a, set, a special suspension as well. When they actually ended up producing the car, it turned into about 400 units, Sam. All 400 units had Buick 350s, not the 455. So what year did they bring in the Turbo V6 uh, to replace the standard small block? So for the Bicentennial, they kept the Free Spirit campaign and ended up winning, again, the Indy 500 bid to have the pace car rights. This time we saw the first launch of the 231 cubic inch 3.8 Buick V6 that we know now in the mid to late 80s. Slightly different than what we know. This one was a blow-through carburetor with 22 pounds of boost and somehow stayed alive for the entire race and pre-production testing. 306 horsepower for a production potential car was crazy. The hottest Trans Am Camaro Corvette topped out at 210 horsepower. Performance was not in mind for GM, Ford, Chrysler, etc. 
they're really focused on fuel-efficient cars because of new regulations from the United States government, whether that was smog-exempt fuel efficiency, the introduction of Japanese cars starting to come in at a compact size that were fuel-efficient. I mean, we're just a couple of years away from only having Pintos, it seemed like, on the roads. So Turbo V6 really introduced a strong path to having the best of both worlds. But at the time, we really didn't know it. So this was the first major horsepower car that led a pace uh, or an Indy 500 race. And ultimately, there's just under 2,000 produced. But like 75, unfortunately, none of them came with this massive 300 horsepower little beast. And they're all 350s. So still in 76, we're looking at the uh, the small block. And at what point now do the Turbo V6 come into production? Is that 77, 78, 79? So we're going to skip 77. Nothing really happened. Uh, Buick 350 was still pretty standard. Uh, this is right around the time GM started sharing engines across different families. So an old 403 was a commonly found engine in Buick. Pyrrhus obviously didn't like that, but that's what the factory did at the time. So we really need to fast forward to 1978. So 1978 was the beginning of the production turbo cars, is that correct? Correct. So initially there was two different lines, the 1978 Buick Regal Turbo Sport Coupe, which matched the Buick 350s in production for 76 and 77 with just a six-cylinder turbocharged engine, 165 horsepower, 265 foot-pounds of torque. They produced about a total of 30,507, with the vast majority being a four-barrel carbureted intake. They did offer a two-barrel option that was just slightly less on horsepower, 150 and 215. So in 1978, they offered, the obviously, the Buick Regal Turbo Sport Coupe and the Saber. Uh, but 79, it seems, is the year that this really picks up, and they start to offer more along their line of cars. Um, I believe they went up to four cars total that they started offering with this Turbo V6. Can you tell us a little more about the 79 production year and uh, kind of what that meant for Buick in general? Sure. Well, the names get a little confusing, so I'm just going to read these off a piece of paper. There was still the Regal Turbo Sport Coupe. There was still the LeSabre Sport Coupe. They offered the Century Sport Turbo Coupe. And then the fourth one that I think actually matters the most is the Riviera that they offered a Turbo Buick V6 in. Um, the Riviera at the time was their luxury flagship car early in the 60s when they first launched it. It competed in a way with Corvette, certainly not as sporty, but almost like a luxury muscle edition that would also compete with like a T-Bird. And it was a beautifully designed car, and, and they really kept the line from 63 straight through 85, and then um, discontinued a little bit after and brought it back in the late 90s, but none of that's really relevant. Although the late 90s Rivieras did have superchargers, which is kind of cool. So adding that as the flagship was a big deal between 79, 80, and 81. Pretty much everything remained the same. Um, ironically enough, Buick actually got into the Indy Pace car Game again in 83 with uh, the Riviera itself. It was a convertible that had a monster 4.1 twin turbo, highly modified, and it produced a whopping 410 horsepower to the factory front-wheel drive luxury convertible. And that's not a car that you could get off a lot? No, I, I really don't know what happened to it. I think there was two made total. Only one was the twin turbo, and that car still does exist. I believe it's in the GM Heritage Museum. Gotcha. So... The end, the beginning of the 80s, uh, the 81, um, we started to see a, 
a downsizing cars in most racing. Uh, where did Buick fall on this? Uh, you know, how did they get into the racing world in the early 80s? Sure. So obviously, 79, 80, 81, all still produced massively because of fuel efficiency. Performance really wasn't a thing. Um, unfortunately, Buick was still losing sales. Their common buyer is what we know as, hey, my grandfather had a Buick. Young people were not buying, similar to how they did in 70, 71, and 72 with the uh, Grand Sport. They're really on the outside looking in. But it seems like the stars aligned. Buick, in 1981, redesigned the Regal just slightly to make it a more slanted, aggressive front end. And they were still competing in NASCAR races. And right in 81, NASCAR dropped the big-bodied 76 to 80 line with downsized cars and I'm doing air quotes here with Sam, downsize. They were still big cars, but they weren't as big as they were just a year prior. So 1981 was really the breakout year for Buick, correct, in the NASCAR scene? Uh, it was kind of the year they took off and, and dominated pretty well throughout the in, entirety of 1981. Can you go into that a little bit and, and what their record was like, uh, you know, why they were so good? Yeah. 1981 was obviously a huge year for NASCAR, as you just stated. With the redesign of the 80 bodies kind of being phased out, they were a little bit larger. The redesigned 1981 Buick Regal had a slightly more aggressive sloped front end, which did well for aerodynamics at the time. It isn't a huge focus like it is today, and there wasn't a lot of wind tunnel testing. Yeah, and by today's standard, I mean, we wouldn't necessarily consider a 1981 Buick Regal a, an aerodynamic car. Um, or small car for that Or matter. small car, you know. But for the time, it, it was definitely uh, much better than it had been in years prior. Definitely. It was um, still a brick, but not the biggest brick. So they had drivers, pretty much all the big names at the time. Richard and Kyle Petty, Harry Grant, Daryl Waltrip, Bobby Allison, Terry Labonte. They just... Dominated. I, I think most of the series was Buick dominated, but they did win 22 of 32 races, including the Daytona 500, which Sam, I think we both know who would have won that out of that list of names. It would be Richard Petty, of course. Sure. Uh, however, he didn't end up winning the Manufacturer's Championship. Daryl Waltrip did in a 1981 Buick Regal. So yeah, the Buick Regal, 22 of 32 races won in the Manufacturer's Championship. Richard Petty won the Daytona 500. Just a really successful year, and it carried into most of 82. Uh, they didn't actually win the Grand National Championship, but Waltrip repeated and won the 82 championship again in the Mountain Dew Buick, uh, which is pretty well known. There's a lot of models made after it today. 82 is really where it all kicked off. So 84 is not the first production year. No, it is what we know today, the all-black car. But 1982, you have to think of the old adage. Remember uh, the... NASCAR adage that if you won on Sundays, dealers would be packed and sold all through Monday. It was readopted for 1982, which, again, doesn't make sense because it's a Buick. It is a dad, granddad, luxury car. It's not a performance car. Yeah, but that success in NASCAR, obviously, had to have some impact on the dealerships. And, you know, if they were to start offering these turbo V6s as they did in the 70s, I mean, that has to carry over at some point into sales. And that's what um, the lead executives in marketing, sales, and engineering thought. So they did come out with a 1982 Grand National. This is really the birth year. Essentially, what they did, took special edition Regals off the line that were all painted in a light gray, hooked up with a company called Cars and Concepts that produced these similar gray cars and then blacked out the inserts of, like, if you were really looking from the rocker panel to the top of the door, in all charcoal dark colors. Not black on black like we know. 
but still different than the typical production car you'd buy. And that was a two-tone charcoal, right? Like a darker charcoal and a lighter charcoal in the uh, majority of the body? Correct. Yep. So not only did they do that, they had T-tops that were standard, a console, a leather-wrapped steering wheel, two-tone bucket seats that had black leather inserts, and really debuted the iconic Turbo 6 logo that we all know today. Um, kind of hard to describe through audio, but it's essentially a red line and an orange line that are swooped into a number six and has a turbo, almost like a T on top of it, and it looks like a turbocharger. It's pretty cool. Yeah, car guys will definitely know that uh, that symbol pretty well. Um, we had our Lou's Buick Grand National sitting in the garage for a while, so I've grown quite familiar with that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so in 82, you know, I know the, the Grand National is 84 is when they started selling them. Why did they not start selling them in 82 if that was their first quote-unquote production year? I don't have a legitimate answer for you. I do know that J.D. Duffy, who was the director of sales at the time, saw a huge marketing opportunity with the coinciding 82 Daytona 500 literally a year after Richard Petty won. So they rushed these cars like mid-production, built an X number, but did have one prototype, quote-unquote, that he, I don't even think, got legal permission from NASCAR to display in Daytona for the 1982-500. Also, while it's coinciding that they took the Grand National name and were subsequently sued by NASCAR, that was the other series outside of the manufacturer series, but they did have one that was shown and ultimately led to a whopping sales of 215 produced, none of which had a turbo, although the prototype unit did have a turbocharged V6. But they came with a whopping 125 horsepower on a 4.1 liter V6. Pretty disappointing, almost just an appearance package. The company they partnered with Cars and Concepts, there's pictures on the internet, it's crazy. You could have a stock car with a spoiler that will just go back and forth about an inch because they just hogged out holes and hoped it fit. The finish wasn't good on the charcoal paint that they did. The interior wasn't fantastic. Uh, it's probably a good thing that only 215 made it to production. Otherwise, it was just a appearance package that promised empty hopes and dreams like the pace cars of 75 and 76. So we're still a long way off from the Corvette killer that we know from the uh, mid to late 80s. Uh, in, in the 1982 and 1983 production You better years. watch what you say with Corvette Killer now that Darren... Now that Darren has one. Yeah. And the other Corvette guys that have come on this podcast and have been awesome <laughs> listens. Keep going. <laughs> so in 1984, that was really a big year for GM. Um, that was when the C4 Corvette was launched. And also in the third year production was the Camaro. The following year, 85, was when they introduced the IROC-Z. Uh, so a pretty big year for GM in general. Where did that leave Buick? Right, so... And if you look at the competition, the Fox Body Mustang had just launched a turbo four-cylinder power in the SVO, coinciding with Buick's decision to, for whatever reason, take 1983 off, come back with the all-black, almost the Darth Vader-esque car that we know. Uh, 84, 85, and 86 are all very similar-looking cars, but there is a hot air era of Grand Nationals, and that's 84 and 85. So what do you mean by a hot air car? Yep, so 86 and 87 are the pinnacle two years of performance. We'll get into that in a little bit. Hot air means that these cars didn't have a major component to performance that the 86 and 87 cars had. 
there were still huge technological advancements like sequential fuel injection and the Garrett Turbo that were installed from 84 to 87. Buick did a great job partnering with Garrett, still an industry leader in turbocharging today. And those ultimately had these cars ripping pretty quick for what was on the market. So I know you had already mentioned the Fox Body Mustang that came out. They had the uh, the Turbo 4, another big car of that era that was similar and I would see as direct competition for the Grand National and the Fox Body was the uh, Turbo Daytona uh, made by Dodge. So would you say those are the big three that were kind of all running the turbo, you know, smaller engines uh, with a turbo? Oh, for sure. I mean, I think we know Fox Bodies as 5.0s which didn't come until 85 or 6. I don't remember off the top of my head. But you have three turbo cars. The Buick had the biggest engine with the Turbo 6 at a 3.8 liter displacement. And they weren't even looking at those cars as really competition. The hottest Corvette that also had huge technological advancements with what we now know as the Crossfire injection, almost a failure, only produced 200 horsepower. Excuse me, 210 horsepower. The... 84 Grand National and subsequently 85 Grand National with the, sequ- the sequential fuel injection, the distributor list control ignition, they were producing 200. So you're getting 10 less horsepower from two less cylinders. Correct. Now, I, I know you might not know this offhand, but what's the curb weight of these two? I mean, I, the G-Body, <laughs> is that's a it's a big, hefty car. Like you said earlier, a brick. Uh, I'd have to imagine that the Corvette had a weight advantage on it. Yeah, definitely a weight advantage, which I believe is the reason their quarter-mile times were so similar. Buick did it in 15.9. Corvette topped in right at 15.7, but I have no idea what the Corvette would have weighed. I know the Buick weighed right around 3,860 pounds. Therefore, I would assume the Corvette was three to 400 lighter, at least. I mean, they're still a heavy, bulky car if you've ever driven one. Nevertheless, they both competed. One so- out of four seats. So in 84-85, we still weren't at that point where the Grand National was overtaking uh, the V8 muscle cars yet. Correct. But we're close. We're getting close. Yeah, the gap was closing. I do think that sales weren't as strong as what they wanted them to be in 84 and 85, thus resulting in the performance upgrades for 86. We can get right into it now. Yeah, so 86 was a big year for Buick. Uh, You know, they were kind of chasing sales to a point where they needed, they needed a success at this point. There needed to be more power left on the table to get buyers in dealerships. And they did that. I mean, we've kind of been hinting on a little bit, but the intercooler added to the 86 and 87 Grand Nationals. It's a front-mounted intercooler. It has a massive air dam at the bottom of it, just soaking cold air coming as you accelerate. Made every bit of difference. It was crucial to the legacy and, and what we really know today. Did they do anything else other than adding that intercooler, which, very layman's way to explain that, it takes in air, cools it down, forces it into the engine, uh, as opposed to the hot air, which had no cooling, it was directly in, was that still the, the blow-through turbo at that point? It was a blow-through carb turbo? No, that, that went away in 82. Okay. So yeah, the intercooler was a huge thing, but was there anything else done to these cars? Um, you know, they I, I don't expect that they would have just done that and left it. I assume there would be more upgrades that they did. Sure. Um, not really for 86. <laughs> really, the only difference between an 85 and 86 Buick Grand National are small. The grills are exactly the same. They did change in 87. Uh, there was new chrome wheels that were shared between 86 and 87, new for 86. I know there's a lot of numbers here. We're just kind of going back and forth. And the one big thing that you could really tell from an 86 
to say an 85. The third brake light, which became standard for the United States production vehicles. The Turbo 6 badge that we referenced in 82 were now glued right to the front fender and the cool word intercooled right underneath it. And that's really it. Um, so what did that... dam, obviously, that we referenced when we were talking about the massive scoop hanging off the bottom front of the car for the intercooler, but that's it. So what did that add, you know, horsepower-wise? What Just that... That air dam, some sweet badging, and an intercooler, you know, it was sitting at, what, 200 horsepower in the 1985 version? So, yep, it added two things, though. Both a massive increase in numbers, 235 and 330 foot-pounds of torque for 86. Also a massive rivalry that was starting to brew with the 84 and 85 cars between GM and Corvette, or excuse me, Buick and Corvette, now became even more apparent. And I know there's kind of a... uh slightly famous uh, car and driver review it said something along the lines of Corvette get out of town Mustang move over Camaro keep your back at the wall at all times the biggest baddest gun west of the Pecos is loose in the streets and there's going to be some shooting uh, sure. referring to the Grand National uh, you know telling all these other GM cars and uh, the Fords to watch their back because the Grand National was coming for their throne so is 1987 that's the year I mean that's the one everybody knows that's the the black on black uh, the Turbo 6 car. Sure, I mean, before we get right there, you got to think of the time, right? It was the mid-80s. Performance was actually back in American production cars for the first time. And the Buick specifically was taking on everybody. Corvette released their car at 230 horsepower. Grand National said, well, we know what we're making. We're going to be a little conservative, but we're going to go five horsepower more. GM did not like that. It was a huge deal. Corvette was the flagship, as Sam just said. And here we are with a all-black Buick that is not even looking at Corvette. They're targeting the hottest cars, the exotics that were on everybody's poster, on their bedroom wall, as a kid that you were reading as soon as the car and track or, or car and driver or road and track or motor trend, whatever magazine came out. For example, the Lamborghini Countach was doing 0-60 to 60 in 4.7 seconds. The Ferrari Testarossa was doing 0-60 to 60 in 5.5 seconds. And the Buick was hanging right there between the two at 4.9, topping out with a 13.9 second quarter mile at about 98 miles per hour. So that's almost a second quicker than some of the earlier cars. You know, I think they were running, what, 14.9s, right? And yeah, it was crazy. That's got to have a big boost on sales numbers. You know, how does, that, how does that affect Buick's bottom line? Because, you know, this is, we're coming into 87, this is the year they need to, or 86 was the big year for them, you know. Was it successful that they made these uh, these beasts out of these turbo cars? Yeah, it was still not as drastic as they wanted it to be, but I think if you look at 87, it really set the line up for success. About 5,500 units were produced between 84 and 85, and I'm going off of memory here. I believe 86 had just over 8,000. So definitely a boost, but nothing crazy. So with those numbers in the 1986 cars, uh, obviously rivaling Lamborghini and Ferrari, that had to improve sales somewhat for Buick, right? I mean, this was the big year for them with sales declining in 80, 84, 85. So, I mean, that had to be a, a huge spike for them, right? It was definitely a spike. Huge is probably a little bit of a stretch compared to what 86 and 87 did. For 84 and 85 total, there was just over 4,100 units produced. 86 on its own did about 5,500. And really are looked at as one of the more collectible versions today just because of the limited production number. 
and really the first year for the intercooler. So hardcore Buick Grand National collectors look at those cars as something special, where the modern mainstream know 1987. So you would say 1986. This is the beginning. You know, we're finally here to the, the true, the Buick Grand National being the flagship car to rival the Corvette. We're finally there, uh, yeah. with them marking down 235 horsepower to Corvette's 230. Uh, so tell me a little bit about this 1987 Buick Grand National Turbo V6 car that uh, you know we really think about when we think about performance Buick. Sure. And the worst part about it, we're just peaking, right? And we're just at the beginning of massive V6 turboed power, but it's all about to come to an end. Well, especially we have the domestic market moving in, um, you know, you have old FD cars, stuff like that, you know, leading into the early 90s with the Supras, things like that. I mean, you would think this would be the beginning of a good era for Buick, especially when they're topping the likes of the Corvettes. And GM had a different story for the entire market. Buick, Pontiac, Oldsmobile, Chevrolet, Cadillac. Gone were the days of rear-wheel drive cars, or at least they were going that way. And Buick knew their last G-body that was going to be rear-wheel drive, would be 1987. So what did they do in that 1987 production year to really send it off of the bang since this would be the last year that they knew they were making these cars? Just like they did the last three years, not much. Um, they were, like I said, in 86, they were being conservative, right? They knew there was a competition with Corvette. There was rumors for 87 that Corvette was coming out with a whopping flagship amount of 240 horsepower to then best Buick by five for 86. I don't know the actual number that the first turbocharged 86 intercooled engine made on the dyno, but I do know they were being conservative and, again, being keen like they did in 86. They waited for Corvette to launch their number, and Buick just stepped it up five horsepower more with 245 and 355 foot-pounds of torque. Uh, again, besting as the top production car in GM's lineup for 87. So the Grand National is still running the 13.9 quarter mile, and just to put that into perspective, the Camaros of the time with uh, 225 horsepower, 330 foot-pounds of torque, running it in about a 14.2, and uh, 5 Mustang GT was right there in about 14.9. So still besting, you know, the best that GM had to offer at that time. So, you know, in 1987, the Buick Grand National, that was it, right? They uh, they ran their 13.9 and went off into the sunset. Is that the way it ended? They did technically peak uh, especially in the sales department with 20,000 units produced they finally hit that number that they felt really strong about like a car that actually deserved what it performed in the magazines it produced in the sales department so it was a pretty big deal however we're going to reference it again all they did was a new grill for 87 on the production car Buick really seems to like just upgrading that front bumper and grill and calling it a day yeah, they did, and then they looked at it being the last year of the G-Body, and they kind of said, you know, let's throw out all plans, and let's get a little wild. And that's what I want to hear about. I want to hear about the GNX. So, uh, I have this entire paragraph for my shorthand highlighted, because this was my most fun thing to talk about. There's actually a Grand, um, a Grand National documentary, it's called Black Air. The Black Air documentary is worth the $4.99 on YouTube. Just for the magazine editor interviews that were able to drive a GNX brand new, which we're about to get into, um, they produced a car, and maybe I'm overstepping my boundaries, but it was deemed an axe-wielding barbarian laying waste to everything in its path. 
So what you're telling me is they added a new grill and widened up the front air dam a little bit more and slapped an X on the end of it and called it a day in, in typical Buick style. Is that right? No, they really went all out on this. Similar to how they did in 82, soliciting a third-party vendor. Uh, this time they didn't go with the shoddy cars and concepts. They went with ASC McLaren and leased out 500 units, basically giving them a blank slate saying, hey, we're going to celebrate this and really kick it off with one last go around. Take this car. We'll work with you. Our engineering team will work with you, but we want to produce the ultimate GNX or Grand National. And it ultimately became the GNX Grand National Experimental. So with 500 units produced and sent out to ASC McLaren, what exactly did they do to these cars? Um, and what are we talking performance numbers in the end? I mean, they were already running a 13, a 13.9 and a quarter and already besting the Corvettes, the Camaros, Fox bodies, and stuff like that at the times. So what did they do to really make these things, these 500 in particular, stand out? So they actually did a, a lot. Now, not too much to the body, although everything they did do to the body of the car was performance-oriented. They started with a larger turbo, again, partnering with Garrett. They had it more efficient internally with a faster spooling wheel that ultimately produced more boost. They added a redesigned intercooler that was more dense. They increased the head flow of the car. They reflashed the chip to alter fuel pressure, and it really made the car scream. They also got rid of the 124 mile per hour regulated kind of shutoff that was in the chip, and it spooled that thing up to... 420 foot-pounds of torque, and 300 horsepower. That's quite a jump from the uh, 235 to 245 horsepower that we saw in the 86, 87 years. Um, was it pretty much all engine-based, all their upgrades? Was it mostly, you know, obviously they added the larger turbo, a, a few things like that? Or was this a full car uh, modification to kind of make it just a, a, a road beast and, and a track monster? Yeah, it was uh, very much not just intended to go in a straight line. With all the added horsepower, the car was pretty much unsafe to drive, and it needed to handle better. I mean, it's still a brick on a frame with limited cornering technology, right? So they added a panhard bar and torque bar to the rear differential, an extra body bushing right over the rear wheel hump, and that really stiffened a lot along with shocks and springs. They dialed everything in and put massive 245 16-inch wheels and tires in the front, 255 16-16s in the back. How do you fit a 255 in the rear? That's where the first body modification came. <laughs> um, they flared out the front fenders and rear quarters. Uh, it's my favorite look. It's just so aggressive sitting still. Uh, they also added vents to the front fenders that were functional, although I really doubt they did move air in any capacity um, and then really the only interior change was Stuart Warner gauges to show anything from temperature to tachometer to boost pressure and then they badged them but we were mentioning 500 units somehow Buick and ASC McLaren were able to squeeze out 547 units that again not only beat the contemporary Corvettes it even produced enough to legitimately beat the Countach, matching the 0 to 60 in 4.7, up in quarter mile times to 13.5. It, it was crazy. And it was a American production car that was quite literally a third of the price as the top Lamborghini or Ferrari. And this is all doing it off of a turbo V6 and not a big American V8. Um, big shift in philosophy there for, for GM in general. 
what would it cost to get me in one of these 547 GNXs? Or I guess a better question, were, were they even available to the public? Or was this a, you had to know somebody at ASC McLaren to get one? No, so they were given to select dealers throughout the country. However, you were not paying the MSRP sticker of twenty eight grand. Most went ten, twenty, twenty five thousand dollars more. I think there was one rumored well over seventy grand. Although I can't confirm that. Um, I don't think anyone really can confirm that. I don't know if anyone would admit to that. Famous people like Reggie Jackson were driving one around, pretty standard. There was rumors of people ordering three at a time and doing anything you can to ultimately capture a car. Similar to, if you remember how the Hellcat was first released in 2015, everything was over MSRP because so many people wanted them. It was the first time we saw anything like it. It was a pretty big deal. So you're saying these cars are, you know, probably going in the safe range, fifty, sixty thousand $60,000 each. Yeah. What could you pick? Can you even pick up a GNX now? You know, and what would that cost you? I would assume you're only going to see those at Barrett-Jackson, Hemming, stuff like that. Um, but what is one of those costs now? Yeah, it's crazy. The, the legacy today, specifically with the GNX, is they hold their value well. I've seen drivers go for 60, 70 grand that had 40,000 miles and maybe a repaint or needed a repaint. Had It was also typical 80s quality for any car. Uh, all need, all needed repainted, yeah. all, you know, plastics and dash cracked, et cetera. Yeah, exactly. I think the record was set two years ago. And a very low mileage one sold for over two hundred grand. It might have been two hundred fifty. There have even been Grand Nationals that have gone hundred, hundred and fifty that had zero miles. There was a pair of them that were discovered years ago that left the assembly line one after the other and stayed together the entire time. So the cars are definitely out there. We mentioned I have one. I was fortunate enough to get into my eighty seven Grand National where it was totaled out in two thousand two. It only had 37,000 miles on it when I bought it in 2014, but it needed a whole new frame. It needed the body pulled back down. I was able to buy a, an X87 Real Grand National parts car that was an X race car that I was able to basically take everything off, and I drive and enjoy my car now. It's a lot of fun. It is a fun little car to get in, get a little sideways in. Still not little. Uh, well, true. Also for, get sideways very For easily. the time. So what would you say is a long-lasting legacy of not just the Grand National, but what Buick did with these Turbo V6 cars, whether it's the LeSabre, the Regal, um, you know, the Riviera, the Riviera S. <clears throat> what is it that they really brought and, and has stayed uh, throughout time? Yeah, it's definitely a pioneer. Buick wasn't the first manufacturer to use turbos to increase power or fuel efficiency. Certainly aren't the last. I mean, it's pretty much every car you get today more likely than not, has a turbo. The Chevy Cruises, the Honda CRVs, the Ford EcoBoost, they yeah, all have a turbo. Yeah, you buy a Ford pickup truck with the turbo in Exactly, it. and it's all for really understanding that, hey, these power adders do both boost fuel efficiency and performance at the same time, where you're either going on par with what a V8 would, or you're beating it and having fun doing it, because when a turbocharged engine kicks, it kicks hard. It's a good time. From a pop culture standpoint, like these cars are so popular now with... Fast and Furious movie, having them as one of their cars, stapled cars, the celebrities like David Spade who drive one around in Hollywood every day, uh, a lot of references in music. It's just kind of a cult classic that if you do know what they are, you get really excited. And if you don't know what they are, they might just be a Monte Carlo or a 442 or a Cutlass to you, but they're still unique because of that Turbo V6. 
that's what really sets them apart from the Monte Carlos and the 442s and stuff like that. I mean, that V6 engine that was not available in the Monte Carlo SS. I uh, believe that was still a small block 350, right? Um, yeah, as far as I know. Yeah, I don't know a ton about those air other than their steering boxes, but, uh, <laughs> you know, it's it really does set them apart, and the fact that they were able to compete with these high-end cars, you know, you, we mentioned earlier the Countach and uh, Ferraris that they were able to beat and hang with is crazy coming out of a V6, it'll be, I keep saying little, but little of the time Buick, you know. Lou, is there any other parting things you want to say about the Grand National or the Buick in general? And, you know, maybe you want to touch on why you love it so much. Um, did you grow up with the cars? You know, what was what was it that you really latched onto with these cars? Yeah, first, do want to say one more thing. Engine sharing was a big deal for GM and other manufacturers. I'm not sure what Chrysler and Ford did, but essentially, these cars did come back. 87 was last year. We talked about that. The 89 Turbo Trans Am was a V6 turbo-powered 4.1 liter that produced a ton of power. And then in 89 through 91 or 92, GMC had the Cyclone and the Typhoon that, again, were V.1 or 4.1 V6-powered turboed engines that Jay Leno, he does have a Cyclone, I believe, whatever the truck version is. So, super popular cars. I mean, for me... I like my car because I, you know, grew up with Buick. I, I do have 70 and 72 Grand Sports. My dad always had big Buicks. And then when I started walking around car shows, I'm like, hey, I would like to see muscle cars. I know we could like Buick and Cadillacs, but I just don't think they exist. First got introduced to the Grand Sport. And then once I started buying parts for that, saw a lot about the Turbo V6 and saw them in movies like Fast and Furious. I'm like, man, they're pretty cool and unique, just like the rest of the Buicks that I've come to love. So, for me, it is the only car I own other than my daily drivers that I can use as a daily driver. I can get into it and go to work at 5 in the morning and not have to worry about it breaking down. It drives like a modern car. It's certainly a different type of fast. It's probably not fast by today's standards, but it's unique. And I can put the cruise control on at 85 miles an hour, and if I had to get down to the passing gear, just spool it up, it kicks down, and it goes. So, um it's super unique in that way. The T-tops are still weird. They leak. It's got its own problems. It's never left me stranded. I've driven it on 400-mile round trips and haven't had to worry about anything other than putting gas in it because fuel efficient at the time, getting about 21 miles per gallon combined still doesn't mean a lot today. So it's a unique car for me. I enjoy it. We'll never get rid of it unless someone gives me a lot of money. <laughs> All right, on that note, we want to thank you guys again for joining us on this episode of the Cars of Carlisle Intercast. On behalf of myself and Lou, thank you. If you have any questions, comments, corrections, feel free to reach out to us. We'd love to hear them. Thanks. Well, welcome back. What did you think of the second installment of the Sam and Lou Intercast? Those guys are great, and we're really proud to have them as part of the Cars of Carlisle team. In fact, if you want to learn more about Cars of Carlisle, check us out at carsofcarlisle.com. If you would, go out to iTunes and rate and review. If you think we're doing a great job, we'd love to have five stars from you. And in addition to that, certainly share us with friends. Make us uh, known to your, your coworkers, to your car club members. Help us get the word out there. We really want to grow this Cuber community and make sure that we can continue to bring you great content. Uh, thank you for your continued support, and we really look forward to bringing you amazing shows in the near future. 
Before we wrap this episode, there's the uh, trivia answer that I owe all of you, and that was around the, the question of how in the world uh, did Buick engineers help harness all of the, uh, the power that was coming out of the 1987 Buick uh, Grand National GNX, and that especially around those 360 pound-feet of torque. Well, the answer there is that Buick did, in fact, leverage a rear end housing. This was for the GNX edition only. That was designed by ASC McLaren. And really, this housing was essentially a hinged torque arm that utilized the GNX's own weight to create well over 2,000 pounds of downforce, which then prevented the GNX from doing any line hopping and, most importantly, essentially vaporizing its tires. So, I will say we're at the end of, uh, end of the show. It's about ready to put it into park. Thank you so much for being part of this community. We love having you be part of it each and every week. Be sure to subscribe because what that does is it puts this show into your podcast queue automatically every Tuesday night when we publish and propagate it out to the internet. And that way you have it first thing Wednesday morning on your commute or wherever you might be going or even if you're just tinkering in the garage late Tuesday night. We're there to, uh, to spend, uh, spend some time hanging out with you. So for now, I'll say drive well, be well, and take care.